You're listening to Brain Biohacking with your host, Kayla Barnes. We dive into all things optimal health, nutrition, peak performance, cognitive excellence, biohacking, longevity, and so much more. So hello and welcome everyone. I'm so excited to record my first episode of Brain Biohacking with a great friend of mine and superstar doctor, Dr. James D. Nickel Antonio. Dr. James is a doctor of pharmacy and a cardiovascular research scientist, a well-respected and internationally known scientist and expert on health and nutrition. He has contributed extensively to health policy and has testified in front of the Canadian Senate regarding harms of added sugar. He also serves as the associate editor of the British Medical Journal's Open Heart, a journal published in partnership with the British Cardiovascular Society and is on the editorial advisory boards of several other medical journals. Dr. Dina Antonio is also the author of over 250 publications in the medical literature. He is also the author of five best-selling health books, The Salt Fix, Superfuel, The Longevity Solution, The Immunity Fix, and The Mineral Fix. I am so excited to have you here today. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Kayla. Absolutely. So I've really been drawn to your content because it's so, number one, forward thinking, and number two, it's really going against many of the things that someone traditionally in the cardiovascular space um, would be stating. So thank you so much for really just going against the grain, sharing information that people really um, should know and need to know. So with that being said, let's just jump right in. Um, I want to go back to your, your, one of your first books, The Salt Fix. I don't think that even though you wrote that in 2017, I don't think that um, people are still really absorbing the fact that salt is such an important component of a healthy body and healthy lifestyle. Can you tell us a little bit more about why salt's so important? Sure. It's almost like taking a step back. If you think about it from like a physiological perspective, we're basically the one of the only mammals that utilizes salt as a thermal regulator, meaning sweat as a, our really our best way to cool off. And so we, so as mammals, we lost fur and we have this great ability to dump heat and that allowed us to persistent hunt in Africa. So we didn't have speed. How would we be able to actually get food? We could hunt animals for hours in the heat because we were so good at sweating and losing salt. So from a, from a quick perspective, we are besides horses, which actually don't sweat nearly as much as us and don't lose as much salt. We are the number one mammal that basically loses the most salt in order to cool off. So from that perspective, we are highly susceptible to basically dehydration and salt loss very quickly. So at an, at, at the basic level, the most important function of the body is to maintain the temperature. The body will lose all of its water and die to maintain a, a set temperature. Otherwise, if it gets too hot, um, enzymes shut down and it can lead to death. So when we think about that as the number one species most susceptible to salt loss, we have to make sure that we always have salt in place, ready to go, ready to replenish those stores if we're exercising or if we're out in the heat or if we're exposing ourselves to things that can cause salt loss in other ways, like coffee and caffeine, which so many people do, uh, most people realize that that is 
leads to dehydration and water loss. But the reason why it does that is there's tremendous sodium and actually about two times the chloride loss when you consume ca caffeine and coffee. And then beyond just being a thermoregulator, salt is composed of two essential minerals, sodium and chloride. And chloride at its basic mechanism helps us form hydrochloric acid um, or stomach acid. So we don't digest food well, we don't absorb nutrients well, and we don't kill off pathogens from our food well if we're on a low salt diet because low salt diets have been shown to actually reduce stomach acid and increase the pH of the stomach. So if we wanna be able to digest food well, absorb nutrients, really consuming salt is very important. Wonderful, and, and I totally agree. So if someone were to ask you, what is the optimal level of salt? What would you say? And what kind of salt should people be consuming? Right, and so that's like really the heart of the question that in the debate is that certain people are quote unquote salt sensitive. Um, and in the salt fix, I talk about the three most common reason, reasons why someone would be salt sensitive, that being magnesium deficiency, potassium deficiency, or overconsuming refined carbs and sugars, which leads to insulin resistance, which about 75% of the US adults have. And so that's why so many people, really salt sensitivity is the, one of the first signs of either a nutrient deficiency or insulin resistance. And in that book, in the salt fix, I, I sort of showed several studies that if you fix the insulin resistance, either through diet or use of medications like metformin, you basically wipe out the salt sensitivity. So it's like, don't blame the salt for what the sugar did. I, I say that a lot because salt is a part of our body. Like our blood is extremely salty. It contains 3,200 milligrams of sodium per liter, which is about one and a half teaspoons of salt per liter. And so if, if our bodies couldn't handle salt, um, then it wouldn't be, our bodies wouldn't be so salty. We, our kidneys actually filter a teaspoon of salt and have to reabsorb a teaspoon of salt back into the body every five minutes. So we basically filter three and a half pounds of salt every single day. Um, so to think that consuming one teaspoon of salt is too much for our body is not how our, our biological systems are built. And so for most people, if you go less than 3000 milligrams of sodium, all the stress hormones like renin, aldosterone, angiotensin, noradrenaline, adrenaline, um, insulin, all increase significantly. And that dramatically goes up as you go below 1500 milligrams of sodium. So in my eyes, there's like this salt thermostat and there's this optimal range, just like any mineral has, where you don't get enough, you can get an optimal amount or you can get too much. And we know that when you go below 3000 milligrams of sodium, that's when you start seeing the harms and the optimal amount in regards to not just hormone releases, but also the lowest risk of cardiovascular death or mortality sits between three and 5,000 milligrams of sodium per day. And when it comes to what kind, do you like Celtic sea salt? Do you like mineral drops? What's your kind of favorite? Well, when I was looking through this before, well, during writing the salt fix, I really landed on Redmond Real Salt as probably my favorite because number one, it's not from a current modern ocean, it's from an ancient ocean. So all the microplastics that are basically dumped into the current oceans and that can be found in current sea salts basically are much lower or lacking uh, in ancient dried up salts that are 600 feet below the ground like Redmond. So that's, that's one reason. The second reason is if you look at their mineral analysis, their salt contains 178 micrograms of iodine per 10 grams of salt. 
um, not artificially added iodide. And we lose iodine through sweat. We lose about 50 to 100 micrograms of iodine per hour of exercise through sweat. So it's important to not just replace the salt, but to replace iodine back because a lot of athletes are losing iodine through sweat, which can lead to hypothyroidism. And so that's why some people who constantly work out, constantly sweat, start to maybe gain weight because they're actually driving hypothyroidism due to iodine deficiency. That's really interesting. Um, is it possible because a lack of salt could lead to less sweating? Um, sometimes I see clients that don't actually sweat very much at all. Is that something that can be connected? For sure. If you go uh, on a higher salt intake, it'll boost blood volume. It'll increase your ability to sweat and cool off, which is partially why consuming salt prior to working out is one of the best pre-workouts because you're a better cooling off machine and you can produce more sweat. And even in animals too, you produce more milk, like animals lactate and they are more fertile and they have more, uh, more numbers in their litters when they consume more salt. So it's very important for fertility as well. That's, that's great insight. So it seems like we're talking a lot about minerals, which kind of leads me into my next question. Um, our soil as, as a whole definitely is mineral depleted. Can you talk a little bit about what's changed in our environment and why we may need to supplement more with minerals now than we did in the past? Yeah. One of, so one of the biggest issues is that the uptake of the minerals into the plant is now reduced. And this is, this is due to several things. One, acid rain. Two, fertilizers inhibit the uptake of minerals into the plant. So there's been studies done where like the NPK fertilizers, um, nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium fertilizers will reduce the uptake of minerals by about 30 to 40%, like calcium, magnesium, things like that. Um, and also we, we grow plants much quicker now um, through hybridization and they don't, they literally lack the time to actually take up the minerals too, um, because the yield and turnover is so much faster than what it was 50 years ago. So if you look at the studies, basically 50 to 100 years ago, on average, plants are about 30% less in minerals compared to 50 to 100 years ago, and about 15% less uh, for animal foods because of those effects. So do you think it's, it's still possible to get all of your minerals an adequate amount from food? Or is it kind of like just nutrients in general these days where we find ourselves needing to supplement most, you know, a lot of different nutrients? I think one of the issues is that we don't necessarily know after a hundred years and beyond how much more nutrient rich was the food compared to a hundred years ago. So we, so we have decent data from 50 to hundred years ago which for copper, for certain minerals, it's been depleted by 70 to 80% in vegetables. It's been, copper has been completely eliminated from milk. So for certain minerals, the last 50 to 100 years, you can see tremendous reductions in certain minerals. And therefore, could you really get an optimal intake of copper just consuming healthy foods? Uh, definitely probably not from plant foods. You'd have to really source organs like liver, which is super high in copper. And what's interesting too, when, and this sort of was revealed when I was doing some research on inositol, um, which we form from glucose and a very important molecule for hormones to even work. So how hor hormones don't actually have a direct signal. They don't directly work. They send out second messengers to then work. 
which inositol is one of those messengers. And there's, there's this huge inositol pool, but a lot of these nutrients actually sit in our organs, brains, liver, kidneys, even in our red blood cells, white blood cells. Now we don't eat brains and we don't drink blood anymore, but we absolutely used to do that um, during paleolithic times. There's been a lot of publications where humans sites have been surrounded with cracked open skulls. We would just scavenge carcasses, crack open skulls and get all this DHA and literally consume brains Yeah, and obviously consume blood. And so since we're just eating muscle meat now, typically we're not consuming kidneys, livers, brains, and drinking blood. When I started looking at all the nutrients that are in organs and in blood that we would have gotten, you're never going to really replace it unless you supplement, which is why so many people are deficient in inositol is because the kidneys are really the primary uh, producer of inositol in the body and are the highest concentration. And even I don't eat kidneys. I'll have a, a blend of liver and heart, um, but I've never really got, gotten into kidneys. So I guess the point I'm trying to say is that unless you're consuming the entire carcass nose to tail, which no one really is, you probably do need to supplement with certain things. Yeah, I would agree. You know, liver is of course, one of the most nu nutritionally dense foods in the world, but you, I definitely find myself needing to blend it because straight yes. liver, I just, I can't, <laughs> I'm trying to, you know, get myself used to it, but it's a little bit difficult. I don't really like the taste. Yeah. It, the smell and the taste is difficult. Uh, if you use spices, you, you can, you can sort of get past that, but there are the organ blends that I use. North, North Star Bison is great. They have um, a 75% muscle meat, 25% a liver and heart split. So it's 12.5% liver, 12.5% heart. And what's interesting is, is the heart gives you CoQ10 and the CoQ10 and ubiquinol can actually get into our lipoproteins and LDL and things like that don't oxidize until you deplete all the antioxidants, including ubiquinol, things like that. So it's funny how eating heart can actually protect your heart because it boosts CoQ10 levels in your lipoproteins. Yeah. It's kind of like helps like, you know, they kind of say with the organ. Yeah. Do you think that supplementing with um, organ supplements is adequate or do you always prefer the actual meat itself? I always prefer the meat itself. I've, I've tried uh, liver capsules. They always give me migraines and I don't ever get migraines. I think something when you try to like, since organs are already so concentrated, when you desiccate it and really concentrate it, a lot of people can be sensitive to it. And I've never really seen a, a, a true nutrient profile on like a liver capsule. Like what exactly, how many milligrams of minerals am I really getting? Not to say that they can't provide some benefit. They probably do if you tolerate them, but I'm extremely sensitive to those capsules. I, I can't take them. Mm, that's great to know. So I want to just dive into all things minerals. So you've mentioned a couple minerals in our discussions, but what are the most important minerals for the body? Um, and some of the ones that people are most efficient in these days. So we talked about salt and salt is something that people go like this on you, you become deficient really quick and your energy levels could be low. And all of a sudden you add salt back and you feel so amazing. And then sometimes a lot of people can overdo it too. So like, there's just like, you got to find this perfect balance with salt. Um, over 6 million people in the United States every year are actually diagnosed with low sodium levels in the blood. So it's, it's, a, it's a pretty big issue, but really it's people who are dehydrated, who have elevated blood urea nitrogen that are probably salt deficient. And there's probably 
tens of millions of those types of people. Um, I actually, and- I do reverse osmosis water. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I have to constantly be putting back minerals in because I like that the water's so clean, but you know, then it's just removing everything. Do you encounter that a lot? And should you just be like kind of micro dosing the salt throughout the day? Yeah, exactly. So it's typically when you pee, it shouldn't be clear. That means your urine is quote unquote hydrated, but your body probably isn't because you're just peeing out all the water that you consumed. It really should be like a light yellow, basically like a lemonade color. Um, And so if you think about it from an evolutionary perspective, we didn't just have like bottles of like Aquafina or or whatever to just drink throughout the entire day. Um, We probably got a lot of our fluid through blood and salt intake. And you don't need nearly as much fluid if you're getting salt with it. That's the key. They recommend eight cups of water because water isn't nearly as hydrating as a salt solution that is, let's say, as salty as your blood because it doesn't boost blood volume. And that's really true hydration is in two places in the body, the vascular space or blood volume, and then actually in the cell. And so you really don't hydrate very well without minerals because potassium and magnesium is what pulls water into the cell and sodium is what pulls water into the intravascular space. And so, yes, salt should definitely be consumed throughout the day to hydrate. Yeah, I think that's an important point because I, you know, know a lot of people that constantly drink water, but they're still thirsty. So essentially they're just not absorbing the water and actually utilizing it the way that they need to. If you're having to drink tons and tons and tons of water every day, you might want to look at adding in those minerals. Exactly. Because if you're, if your diet lacks salt and you just keep pushing your water content up and up and up, you're going to just drop the sodium levels. So the body's just going to keep dumping all the water that you're consuming because it's like, where's the salt that's needed to even, you know, basically keep the sodium levels normal, keep the blood and the fluid into the intravascular space and to hydrate all the cells as well. You need all three minerals, really potassium, magnesium, and salt. And that kind of brings me to the next mineral that's probably most important, which would be magnesium. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. Talk a little bit about how much, what magnesium kind of does in the body. It's so important for many, many functions, but I would love to hear from you. Yeah. Magnesium basically controls 600 enzymes in the body. Uh, maybe even more than that. And you cannot produce DNA, RNA proteins or ATP without magnesium you can't even activate ATP without magnesium. So how ATP gives us energy is magnesium has to basically bind to ATP. And then through hydrolysis, the terminal phosphate will be cleaved. And that actually is what releases energy. And then you can cleave the second phosphate too. And that releases a little bit more energy, but that's literally how we release energy is through magnesium ATP. And so for us to actually form a lot of molecules, including inositol, in order to actually form uh, inositol from glucose, there's this phosphatase enzyme, it's called IMPase, it requires magnesium. And so for us to produce a lot of things in the body, we need magnesium. So for example, in the brain, it's magnesium in the brain that is required to produce serotonin, which then gets converted to melatonin. Um, same thing to produce dopamine, which then gets converted into norepinephrine. So all our neurotransmitters 
require not just magnesium, but also zinc, uh, iron, copper, and numerous B vitamins, uh, particularly the active B6 to form those neurotransmitters. And there's so many different types of magnesium. What are some of your favorites? Should we just be taking a little bit of all of them? What's your thoughts? Well, for brain health, you know that I love magteen, which is magnesium L3 and 8. That's the patented form of, of magnesium. And it's the brain bioavailable form. So um, the blood-brain barrier prevents a lot of magnesium from getting into the brain and then especially into the neuron. And threonic acid, which is the magnesium threonate, uh, helps drive uh, magnesium, not just into the blood-brain barrier, but then into the actual neuron itself. And so there's there's been at least three human clinicals testing magnesium L3 innate um, in Alzheimer's patients, in patients with cognitive impairment, in patients with ADHD, all showing benefits. Absolutely, yeah, it's such an important, such an important mineral. Um, so, inositol has been so popular on your page, and you kind of mentioned it a little bit, but can you really dive deep into that? What's the major benefit of taking it? How much should we take? Mm-hmm. Sure. I think for me, it was so beneficial because in order for, to keep my brain sharp throughout the entire day, I, I used to consume four cups of coffee and caffeine is a waster of inositol if you consume it at fairly high levels, it has to have like a solid diuretic effect. And it also reduces the bioavailability of dietary inositol by about 23%. So I was someone who was consuming, um, at least four cups of coffee per day. At one point I was consuming six cups for years. And so I was probably just like kicking out a ton of inositol. And so when I started taking it, um, all of a sudden one coffee in the morning, that was it. Like my energy was good throughout the entire day, but my sleep, my deep sleep was tremendously improved. Now I don't have an aura ring, but I've had so many followers messaging me who had the aura ring and started taking it. Their deep sleep went from 45 minutes to over two hours. Um, a lot of people say like, they just like sleep like the dead when they're on it, but they, but they wake up so refreshed and it's true. Like you just shut off. It doesn't cause you to fall asleep. It doesn't knock you out. It doesn't make you tired. Once you do fall asleep though, you seem to get into that REM sleep and that deep sleep much quicker. And you stay there. It seems to be, at least from the, the data that people have sent me, you stay there for two to three times longer in deep sleep. That's amazing. I'm going to, I'm going to try it too. And I'll track it on my aura ring. When do you, when's the best time to take it? So for me, I just take it with my coffee, even though coffee, everyone's like, why do you take it with coffee? Because they're like, it, coffee reduces the bioavailability and, and blah, blah, blah. And yes, it does. It, it, it reduces the bioavailability by about 23%. So at, for the first month I was putting three grams of inositol in my coffee and I would just scoop a little bit of the powder with a little bit of the coffee and let it dissolve in my mouth. And I just feel like it activates me better when I do it that way. But most of the studies show one to two grams twice a day helps to um, improve insulin resistance. It's basically the number one treatment. I can't say treatment, but supplement with many, many clinical studies in PICOS women who are infertile. Um, it's been shown to improve ovulation, menstrual cycles, fertility rates, um, gestational diabetes, glucose levels, really good for PCOS women. Um, many, many other health conditions it's been tested and showing benefits. That's amazing. I can't wait to try it and I'll definitely uh, report back. So I want to talk about 
metabolic syndrome a little bit too. You talked about insulin sensitivity and resistance. So what is metabolic syndrome and why is it, why do you think that it's on the rise substantially? How we define metabolic syndrome is having three or more of five different categories. It's essentially like elevated blood pressure, glucose, triglycerides, low HDL, and uh, elevated waist circumference. So if you have three out of five, you're considered to have metabolic syndrome. This is primarily driven through insulin resistance where insulin doesn't work that much anymore. And circling back to inositol, how insulin works is it hits its receptor and then there are all these inositol molecules that have to be released. Um, basically, uh, inositides, phosphatidyl inositols, inositol glycans for, for, for insulin to actually work, meaning for glucose to be oxidized in the mitochondria, for GLUT4 receptors to come up to the surface, all of that is controlled by inositol molecules. So if you're deficient in it, or you're not getting optimal amounts because we no longer consume things like kidneys and brains, that can literally lead to um, insulin resistance. And we're also consuming so many refined carbs and sugars and seed oils, which damage the body, damage the pancreas, and that leads to insulin resistance as well. So it's said that about 88% of people in the United States um, basically have poor metabolic health, which is essentially insulin resistance. Yeah, I want to chat really quick about the article that just came out about salt, because I think this is really a major root cause of how we got to this place is what's going on with the media, you know, what they're promoting and, you know, the guidelines. So you recently were quoted and correct me if I'm wrong, but so you were asked to speak on this article and then did they t- remove a couple things after that? Yeah. So, um, it was from the New York post and most of the article was actually quoting me on the unintended consequences of taking salt um, out of, let's say, packaged foods and grocery stores. And I had mentioned that when you put out low salt products, that reduces the expiration date by about 50%. So food spoilage and wastage is going to tremendously go up. Not only that, but foodborne illness will also likely go up as well, because salt is the most natural preservative. And I had also mentioned, because it's been the most natural used preservative for tens of thousands of years, what's going to replace it? It's going to be phosphates, nitrates, and nitrites, which are all much more harmful than a natural mineral. They removed all of that unintended consequences of removing the salt, and they added opinions supporting the FDA's position on dropping salt uh, content in the food. And so whether they were trying to balance out the article or not, I think my original published quote should have, all of them should have stayed in, but they removed about 60% of the content. Yeah, that's, that's a real bummer, but I just, you know, as we both are aware, so much of the, um, you know, health issues are just related to the way that the media is portraying X, Y, Z food to be good and then other foods to be bad. So um, I was so happy to see, you know, you quoted in that. um, And it's a bummer that they kind of took a little bit of it back out, but all of your followers and the internet got to see it. So they all know what the real truth is. Um, Are there any tests that people can take to let them know if they have metabolic syndrome? Well, so probably like the easiest is a fasting insulin um, you really typically want your fasting insulin to be less than 10. It's not perfect though. Postprandial insulin assay is much better. It just, 
um, it kind of sucks to do because who wants to fast? Who wants to drink 75 to 100 grams of glucose? Then you got to wait a couple hours to see the insulin spike from the glucose. But that is the ultimately the best test to know if you have hyperinsulinemia, which is a, a very in, good indicator of insulin resistance. If you were to give someone the playbook, so say that you do have metabolic syndrome or believe that you do, what would your first recommendations be to kind of start reversing that? Eliminate the junk food from you know the, the, the kitchen, eat whole nutritious foods, start eating more protein, less carb, um, try to build muscle at least three times a week. So most people, if you just start building muscle, start increasing your protein from whole foods, that tends to fix the satiety issues and the food cravings, which is what really gets people into trouble. Um, mm -hmm. It's those constant food cravings and the glucose spikes and crashes. So if you can get your protein intake to a point where you're consuming most of your protein first, carb after, you can start leveling off your glucose levels better. And then your satiety and food cravings will all set from there. Very interesting. Um, kind of talking about, you know, a very heavy protein diet. I have a couple of questions about the carnivore diet. I would love to hear your kind of take on it. Yeah. Um, that's actually recently why I published a couple of papers on chronic latent metabolic acidosis which is a real phenomenon, meaning if you consume foods that contribute to the acid load, which are the, the hydrogen ions in the body, and they don't bring bicarbonate or citrate, uh, the kidneys have a set capacity for how much acid they can actually release before there's retention. And even if you breathe out acid, in order to do that, you lose a bicarbonate molecule. In other words, there's a cost to con consuming a high amount of animal food. And that cost is a depletion in your bicarbonate stores, which can pull minerals from bone, um, which can sort of pull connective tissue for the glutamine to form the ammonium to get rid of the acid and on and on and on. So it's a real phenomenon. Um, and blood pH will go from like 7.43 slowly down to 7.35 and you'll still be considered normal. Um, however, your bicarbonate stores by that time are totally in the tank. So you just have to offset animal foods and grains, which I don't consume a whole lot of grains because they contribute to the acid load with some type of bicarbonate or citrate forming substances, whether that's mineral waters that contain bicarbonate, whether that's fruits and vegetables, which provide citrate or malate, which end up converting to um, bicarbonate. That should be offset. Otherwise, you will start retaining acid and depleting bicarbonate. So with that being said, I actually, you know, I love to test all sorts of different diets and things on myself. Um, I usually eat a pretty well-balanced brain health diet as I would um, consider it, but I started to move more towards the carnivore and I always check my cholesterol levels and pretty much all of my um, blood and biomarkers. And my cholesterol started to go up like quite a bit. And I was eating grass fed, grass finished meats. Um, I was, you know, the no oils. And when I do have oils, they're all the right things, all organic, et cetera, et cetera. So can you tell me a little bit why that might be? Is that like a risk that some people are always going to take if they go towards that diet? I think there's definitely uh, an increased risk of LDL and potentially even triglycerides going up compared to let's say a whole food plant-based diet. Um, however, that's probably due to a lack of things like wild salmon. If you get the omega-3s up, 
then all of a sudden the triglycerides in the LDL won't be as bad typically um, in regards to responses and increases. Whether it's a bad thing too, um, we need to discuss, right? Because omega-6 seed oils lower LDL, but they increase the LDL susceptibility to oxidation. So movements in LDL don't matter as much as opposed to how susceptible the LDL actually is to oxidation. And typically, if you're going from a processed food diet to a more carnivore diet, the LDL is going to be much more stable and less susceptible to oxidation. Yeah, I think that's a really good topic in general. Um, what are your thoughts on, you know, now if you go to get your cholesterol tested and it's on the high side, they're immediately going to have some sort of concern, but what are your thoughts on, is that science outdated when it comes to cholesterol? Does it matter more about the ratio of HDL to LDL? And, you know, if, if the cholesterol is sticky and fluffy, like, I think that's a really important topic because, I feel like some people that are on more of a meat-based diet, and if they do see their cholesterol rising, it they might be very concerned. But what is your opinion on that? I think there's a little bit of concern. Like, are you not consuming enough omega-3s and things like that? Because I think a lot of people do the carnivore diet wrong. And mm -hmm. even if you do it right by selecting um, certain healthy organs and things like that, you still got to worry about the acid-base balance part too. So... In regards, I've never seen outside of the genetic predispositions leading to very, very high levels of LDL in the presence of insulin sensitivity. So low triglycerides, good HDL, good insulin sensitivity, that having elevated LDL outside of the, you know, uh, familial hypercholesterolemias is a risk. I don't know where that data sits. I've never seen it. Yeah, that's so interesting because my triglycerides were perfect um, and my HDL was perfect. So everything else was good, but I just found it quite interesting because um, that's never really been a concern. But then, you know, I, I agree with you that it depends on many other factors, not just the cholesterol. But what my concern would be is that, you know, if uh, someone goes to a doctor and gets a, you know, quote unquote, high cholesterol back, that they're going to completely change their diet because of those results. And then it might not be an optimal diet. So I hope that, you know, moving forward, we kind of change our um, thought pattern on that. Absolutely. And, you know, there's always a little bit of a concern when you cook animal foods that you are oxidizing the cholesterol in the animal food. It's not that the cholesterol is bad itself, but typically it's pretty stable because of the saturated fats. So that's sort of a key too, but you can't, you can oxidize cholesterol. So if you make scrambled eggs, you're definitely going to have higher amounts of oxidized cholesterol than eating, let's say, eggs over easy. Um, whether that's a problem will depend on dose and frequency. If you're constantly eating tons of scrambled eggs every single day, that could increase your oxidized cholesterol levels and lead to issues potentially. But if it's like once a week occurrence and the rest you're consuming more um, lightly cooked eggs, it's probably not an issue. Yeah. What do you think about sous veing versus actual cooking on the stovetop? Yeah, I think it's important to use herbs and spices when you can to cook anything. Um, but anything that reduces the advanced glycation end products is important because that does contribute to insulin resistance. So there are some carnivores who all of a sudden their A1C starts climbing and they seem to be more insulin resistant. And it may have to do with mineral and nutrient deficiencies, but it also may have to do with such a high advanced glycation end product intake. So I always cut the char off of the meats, not just because that there's carcinogens in the char, although it does taste amazing. I hate doing it, 
um, but to avoid the advanced glycation end products. Yeah, I've been making most of my food in the sous vide for a couple of years now, just to keep keep those AGEs down. So, right. Very interesting. So, are there also some supplements that people can take, say, if they want to keep their current diet and that their cholesterol might be going up because maybe it's more of a primary uh, meat based or whatever the issue might be? What are some supplements that you like for that? So, I've never really thought about trying to drop LDL levels because mm-hmm. I always sort of think more about how do we improve the nutrient intake and how do we improve the insulin sensitivity? So I've always just focused more on triglyceride levels and insulin levels and things like that. I've never tr- specifically been thinking of, well, this supplement is going to help lower your cholesterol and LDL. But one supplement that does do that very well is turmeric. Turmeric can drop cholesterol and LDL levels dramatically by like 40%. Yeah. I love turmeric for so many things, just reducing inflammation. It's great for the brain, all of that. Um, so that that's super interesting. Is there anything else that you want to add on, on minerals that you think everyone should know? Yeah, I think sort of every mineral has its own test. That's sort of the gold standard for that mineral. It's very difficult to just take one test and it's going to be perfect. And actually there really isn't one test for any, there's numerous tests that really should be looked at um, to know whether you have optimal intakes of magnesium or zinc or copper. And so usually we have demonized blood levels, but actually it's because the, the range in the blood is too, too wide. If you narrow the range, and you're more on the middle end of the range and you're not sitting on the lower end, then that's actually pretty indicative because blood, if you're deficient in the body, blood will slightly go down. It typically doesn't go deficient, but it will go to the lower end of normal. So the easiest thing you can do if you're like, oh, geez, is my magnesium good? Not to do a red blood cell magnesium. Red blood cells are the carriers of magnesium. it's, It's not a measurement of is your organs or this or that deficient. Blood is a decent indicator. You just have to, if you're basically less than two on, on a blood test for magnesium, I think, I think that's nanograms per ml, um, less than two, that's pretty indicative of magnesium deficiency, even though our current standard is you have to be less than 1.7. Mm-hmm. I talk about all that, that all the time, because many times, if you go to a traditional Western practitioner, um, there's the, the standard range, but it's really best to find the optimal range for you so that you're actually going to feel your best because so many times people, um, come back with normal blood tests, but still feel like crap. So it's so important to find a practitioner that, um, like yourself, that would actually, tell you how to get to the optimal range. So um, I love this conversation on, on minerals and it's something that um, I'm so happy to learn more from you and um, your book, of course. I wanna talk about what do you do? There's two other questions about your personal lifestyle. So I've seen that you eat green banana sometimes. I would love to just hear a little bit more about your personal food groups. So I typically start the morning out with like pastured steak, two pastured eggs. And then I always try to integrate a little bit of those organ blends. So that way I'm covering my copper, my vitamin A with the liver, which is lacking in the muscle meat. And I always try to get at least 
for me, because I'm active and I lift a good amount of weights, about a pound of pastured meat for the zinc, the B12, um, the protein to cover those. Because without, without red meat, especially for a woman who hasn't gone through menopause and they lose so much, they need more than twice the iron as a man. It's very difficult to get iron to an optimal level because it's so bioavailable in meat versus let's say plants. So plants may contain a lot of iron, but it's much less bioavailable. So spinach, for example, um, the bioavailability of iron from spinach is only 2%. It's 20% for meat. So we have to take those things into consideration. That's why I tend to consume a fairly decent amount of pastured red meat is to make sure I'm hitting those nutrient intakes. And then I do always try to consume one greenish banana in the morning and then one greenish banana for lunch or dinner to boost the potassium, to boost the B vitamins, to bring in the base to offset the acid. So bananas are fairly alkaline, which is why I do that as well. What do you typically have for dinner? Just eating twice uh, dinner, dinner is typically two days out of the week will be wild salmon with some vegetables or another greenish banana. And then the other um, five days out of the week will usually be red meat again. Yeah. Sounds quite similar to my diet. I actually started eating green bananas after I saw you post that. So for a while I was, you know, camp, no banana, but I circled back and I think, yeah, I really like them. Um, what are some of your personal favorite, uh, biohacks or longevity practices? I like the sauna, especially in the winter. I like getting out and getting uh, sunlight in the morning to set my circadian rhythms. Very important for sleep is actually getting light in the morning. Cause that sets when your melatonin will release. I think trying to work out in the afternoon is great as well. If you can, that seems to be the best time in regards to performance recovery is to try to work out some somewhere between like noon and 2 PM, not too close to, to bedtime or in the evening, which will um, reduce you falling asleep and trying to do that like three to four times a week is important. Um, so the sauna is something I do typically more in the winter, but I will do that in the summer. And then trying to think of other biohacks. How much sauna and for how long? How often do you do it? How many times a week? Yeah, it totally fluctuates on how I'm feeling. Like I'll know when I'm dehydrated and I don't have enough salt or it's pretty fatiguing too. So like mm -hmm. there, there'll be a month sometimes where I'll go a full month every single day because I just feel like I can handle it. And then after that like long timeline, I'll be like, my body will just say no more. Don't do sauna for like a couple of weeks. So I totally just listen to my body, but the studies show in the winter, particularly going into the sauna three to five times a week is associated with the lowest risk of, you know, infections, pneumonia, influenza, common cold, uh, Alzheimer's, dementias, things like that, because it's a, it's a form of hormesis. Mm -hmm. And how long do you like to go? I typically go depends on how hot it's set. Usually I have it set about 140 to 150 Fahrenheit and I'll go for like 20 minutes usually. Yeah, that's great. I, I feel the same. Some days your body just tells you like no sauna today, especially, yeah. you know, if you're working out really hard, I try to do it on the days that I don't work out. Um, and some days on the days I do too, but sometimes it just tells you, you know, not today. So I totally agree with that. And I think sauna is great. Do you have the infrared sauna or more of a dry sauna? 
Yeah, I have an infrared and I have the red light slash infrared tower too. So I'll do that more in the winter as well to sort of in the morning and potentially even um, not too close to bed, but a little bit more in the evening as well to get a little bit more of the red light in the infrared as well. Um, other biohacks. I mean, I will sometimes if I'm working out hard, I'll use cold to, to keep working out harder. So if you, if you do basically glabrous skin cooling, which can, which is the forehead or cheeks, the palms of your hands, the palms of your feet, that's the best way to cool down the body. So if you want to work out, um, if you have a very intense workout and you want to be able to lift more weights or go longer, um, doing that type of glabrous skin cooling, uh, like holding like a cold can about passing it, you know, in between your hands or putting it on your forehead. That's a little biohack that I like to do to enhance my workout sometimes. Sauna after a workout is good for recovery. You just have to hydrate really good um, afterwards. Otherwise, your performance is going to suffer the next day. Absolutely. Now that we're going kind of more into the winter months, um, you talked about getting out and getting some sun, which I also love to do. But if that's not going to be possible in winter, do you use a light at home instead? So there's always going to be more light outside than inside, even in the winter, even if you can't see the sun, it'll, there's still more light. So I still think even in the winter, it's important to get outside, not just for the fresh air, but to get more light into the eyes, which will still help set your circadian rhythms. But yes, especially people who live in more Northern latitudes, there is, um, there are lamps like Spurdy, which can give you vitamin D. And there are um, other spurty lamps as well. It's S-P-E-R-T-I. And that's a potential way that people can look into, you know, boosting their vitamin D through, through light. Wonderful. Well, this has been such an incredible conversation. Um, thank you so much. I'm going to include all of your information, your Instagram, your website, everything in the show notes. So thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Kayla.